Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. Verse 18 that I want to focus on today and, and really the next few verses we're going to plow through. He is the head of the body, the church. Now he's, he's zooming in a little bit. He's been talking about holding all things together. Now he's, 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 he's talking to this church in Colossians and he says, you know what? Jesus is the head of his body, the church. This does not mean that he is just merely the founder of Christianity. He's not just the CEO of Christianity, okay? He is, he is the head of the church in the way that a head is related to the body. Even That's the way he's related to us. Uh, to my knowledge, Christianity is the only religion where the founder is still running the show, where he's still calling the shots, where he's still giving direction, where he's still leading the way. He is the head of the body because if he were to be removed from the body, the body would stop working, it would die. And so death happens not, not when a church closes its doors. The death of a church is not when uh, the most uh, well-off person stops giving. <laughs> the death of the church is not when the worship leader decides to move to another town. The death of a church is when the head is removed from the body, when Jesus walks out the door. That's when churches die. They might keep rolling. They might keep the organization of the thing for another decade or two. They might still have deacons and elders and boards and, and budgets and pastors and preaching and singing. But when Jesus walks out the door, this is where churches die because he is the head of the church, which means he's not just in a position of authority over the church. He is actually the life-giving source of the church. He is the thing that sustains the church. He is necessary to the church. He is absolutely necessary to the church. He's not a, he's not a, he's not a, he's not an optional package. He's not the comfort package. He's not the upgrade. He, he, he is, he, uh, he's, he's not the tinted windows in the better sound system. He is what's under the hood and the hood. I've been working on cars a lot lately, so this is my, my context. He, I mean, he is the wheels and the engine. He is the transmission and the fuel pump. He is, he is all that makes up the church of what it is. And without him, that the church is an awful place to be, a full of broken people who are just making people more broken. But with him, he is the oil between all of the gears and all of the carnality and all of our messiness. He is the connection thing that holds us all together and brings us all together and makes us who he wants us to be. He's the head to the body. You take the head away from the body and the body dies and the head loses its purpose. But he is the head of the church and he is the beginning. Uh, probably a better translation of the word beginning is the beginner. Um, the initiator, the instigator, the uh, author, and the finisher of our faith. He is the one who starts things. And he starts them by leading. He's the beginning. And so this, this word also means leader, meaning he goes first. He steps out first. I, I, I'm going to get ahead of, of myself here. But he is the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased... This is so deep. God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him. And through Jesus, 
through him to reconcile to God all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood shed on the cross. Now, verse 21, he gets more personal. He says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now... See, there's, the enemy loves to talk about what you once were, but God keeps that in context only so that he can remain the one getting the glory for who you are but now. There's a but now to those that have come to Jesus. There is a once were, but there's also a but now. And he says, God doesn't forget about your once were because that brings him glory. You probably shouldn't shut up about your once were because you're, you're, sometimes we, we want to act like we've always been this way. Well, if you haven't been, always been this way, you might just want to open about, up about what you once were because it's what you once were that brings the glory to God of what he's done in your life. You once were alienated. You once were an enemy of God in your mind, but now, Paul says, he has reconciled you. Look at this, by Christ's physical body. Do you see that? I'm going to get back to that in a minute, but it is by Christ's physical body that we have been reconciled. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Boy, that's important. This is the gospel that you have heard and that was proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Paul's been, that's, the, that's like the third or fourth time he's mentioned the word hope. It just here in the first, you know, 20 some verses, he is, he is obsessed with this hope. And why not? He's in prison. He's writing from prison where people don't have a lot of hope, where people are quite hopeless. And while he's in prison, he's ever mindful of the hope he has that the guy next to him doesn't have. And he's not bragging about that hope. He's holding on to that hope. And he's trying to extend that hope to everyone around him. And when he writes to this church, he says, guys, don't forget. Don't move on from the hope held out in the gospel. Don't move on to bigger and better things. Don't move on to deeper things. Don't move on to more glorious things. Hold on to the hope held out for you in the gospel. On this Father's Day, I want to honor all the dads in the room, but I especially want to honor my dad who's watching online, I think at the nine. I think they watch the nine. I don't know. If not, this will be recorded and he'll watch it at the 11 maybe. I don't know. Um, but my dad, like my mom and dad got saved and I've shared the story several times. They got saved when I was, uh, just before I was born. I think it was like six months or so before I, I came along. Uh, so they were brand new Christians. They didn't know uh, they didn't know pre-trib from post-trib. <laughs> Just checking to see who in here actually knows pre-trib from post-trib. Um, they, didn't, they, they didn't know anything about eschatology. They didn't know anything about atonement. They didn't, they, they didn't know anything about Jesus. They hadn't read the Bible. Um, and they came to know Jesus, though. They, they met the grace of God and they, the, the hope held out in the gospel. A hope for salvation, a hope for heaven, a hope for the future, a hope for the now. They, they found the hope held out in the gospel, and, and they, they grabbed a hold of it. 
as many of you have, but as many of you have figured out that just because you grab a hold of a hope held out in the gospel doesn't mean that immediately everything right here just changes. There's a bit of a process, and, and I had the privilege of growing up in that process. You know what I mean? To, to, to be a kid in a home that's in process. <laughs> Turns out my kids are also growing up in a home that's in process. Turns out everybody is growing up in a home. There are no, there, there is one perfect father. He's already got that title. There's no other perfect fathers. The rest of us are in process. And we're at different levels of process. And I feel like I've learned some things. I feel like as I grew up, I, you know, I saw them do some things that I said I'll never do that. And I haven't ever done that. Because I said, I'll never do that. See, when I say that, I actually mean it. But, you know, I, I said, no, I don't, I don't think that's the good. And so I learned something. I got to stand on their shoulders, learn from their mistakes, and learn from their wisdom. But more than just dad's wisdom, because honestly, dad doesn't talk much, so he didn't share a whole heck of a lot with us. What I, and besides, I don't think your kids are going to remember what you say anyway. Except the bad stuff. They'll remember all the bad stuff. All the times you got upset and lost. Like, they'll remember that for the rest of their life. But on it, like all your little wise talks and stuff, I don't think they grab quotes and it stays with them or whatever. Uh, what, what, what they remember is an impression. You don't remember what people say. You remember how they made you feel. And, and, and I think growing up, what I, what I remembered... What I remember, because Ro and I were talking about this, and we were like, how do we get our kids to have the same kind of faith that my parents got me to have? How do you, because we're pastoring people all the time who have, who've grown up differently, and, and now they're, they're, they're like, well, I don't know. Is it Jesus? Is it something else? I don't know. This money over here is really important, and that's really important, and this girl, and, and it's just, and it's, it's so hard to plant something in a heart of a ground that's already, other stuff's been planted in there. And so, and so we've talked about how, to, how, how do you instill a love for God, a faithfulness to God inside of somebody. And so I said, man, I, my, my parents did a lot of things, but probably the, the most important thing they did is that they really truly believed that the only hope for our family was Jesus. That it was not them learning conflict resolution better, that it, you know, it, it was not parenting skills, even though they tried to improve on all of those things. What, what, the one thing I got was, no matter what, we are a family that's going to be connected to God, that's going to be connected to Jesus, because he's our one hope. And so this is why, uh, when I was nine years old, they, dad would wake up, <laughs> I don't think mom ever carried us, but I remember dad bringing us out of bed at like six in the morning, in the freezing cold in Michigan, right? It's negative five degrees outside, plus whatever the wind chill is. It's still dark outside. Dad's wrapping us up in blankets. We're pretending to sleep so that he'll carry us. And I'm like Madden's age just about, you know? And, and he's, he's carrying us out to the car. We were in a Pontiac Le Mans. I don't know if you ever saw one of those, but it was like one of the first sort of hatchback kind of car. And so the, he laid the seats down. This is before you had to wear seatbelts. And, 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 and he, he would lay it, he'd make, put a pillow down and make up beds for us in the back of the car. And then they would, mom and dad would get in the car, drive three hours one way to church. And then we have church, and then we go out to eat with people from the church, 
And then we hang out and then we go back to the church and we take a nap because we got up so stinking early and uh, we take a nap in the kids room on the floor. I'm not a pastor. My dad's not a pastor. We don't, we weren't getting paid for any of this. We didn't have a title. My dad wasn't like head usher of the church. He didn't have a badge for anything. He just believed that Jesus was the only hope for our family. And so whatever it takes to get my family in church and around Jesus, that's what I'm going to do. My dad is not especially gifted in, in, in hardly like any of the ways that you would think you would need to be gifted to train people up in, in, in the ways of God, except he's just really, really, really ready to be crazily work really hard. He's got this work ethic that he got from his dad, who got, I'm sure got from his dad. And so when he applied that work ethic to Christ, when he applied that commitment, insane level of commitment to Christ, it just, uh, this, this was our family. And so we're, we're napping in the church because you've got to get ready for the Sunday night prayer meeting. And so then we'd have Sunday night service. And then, of course, we'd go out to eat again because Christians eat a lot. And so we go out to eat again, and we stay till about 11 o'clock at night. And then we make the three-hour journey back. And Dad gets up at 4 a.m. the next day to go to work in Detroit. And we did that for a year until that pastor decided to move to our city and plant a church in our city. And we weren't any less committed when he planted a church in our city for the 12 years that we were a part of that church. And I haven't been any less committed to any church I've ever been a part of, whether I was on staff or not, whether I had a paycheck or not, whether, whether somebody was checking in with me or not. I was there before the doors were open. I was setting up whatever needed to be set up. I was mopping whatever needed to be mopped because, because I just happened to think that Jesus is the only hope for me. And that if I can get close to Jesus, and this is why, this is, this is probably one of the reasons why I became a pastor and not a doctor or not a psychiatrist or not a psychologist, because there are other good things that you can study, but I'm a one trick pony. I have one message. I have one thing. I get people close to Jesus. And if you want to come for, talk with me about other stuff and, and, and with the weather and I, I don't know, I mean, the politics, I'm not that sure about, but I know Jesus and I believe he's the answer for your physical sickness. I believe he's the answer for your emotional mess. I believe he's the answer for your marriage and for raising your kids. He's just, it's, it's just Jesus. It's just him. And I know sometimes it's, that's, that's frustrating because it's so simple. It's like, well, you don't understand what it's like to have teenagers. I had somebody tell me that once. Well, no, but I do understand what it is to be a teenager and to have an intimate look at somebody who is raising teenagers, mainly my parents. And I know what it is also to, to be a really good negotiator, as you can probably tell. I'm pretty good at convincingly making people interested in stuff they normally wouldn't be that interested in. And so I remember like one of the talks that my dad had, we're driving in the car and dad's talking to me about how I need to, you know, apologize to mom about something. And, and, and he made the mistake of letting me talk back not, not in a mean way, but just simply, well, Dad, have you thought about it from this perspective? And I spent about five, ten minutes kind of softening him up to my perspective until finally he's like, well, yeah, that is, that is kind of... And then he's just like, like, no, 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 but you have to apologize to your mom, you know? I don't know. <laughs> like I said, you know, I mean, you know, but... <laughs> so I don't know, like my parents, they, they, they weren't perfect, but they made sure that we were close to Jesus. They did everything they could do to make sure that we knew that Jesus was the hope. Don't move on from the hope held out for you in the gospel. And this is what Paul's talking about. He's like, man, it's about Jesus. And you start moving off of Jesus. You start moving on to your religion. You start moving on to, your, to the ways that you think you can please God. You start moving off of Jesus. 
and it's going to be murky waters. And that's what, that's, that, that's what the Gnostics were doing. The Gnostics, first century Gnosticism, they were teaching that, oh, Jesus is good, but he's not entirely important. What's most important is that you have this like special knowledge. And so let's all try to figure out the special knowledge. And Paul is saying, man, there is special knowledge and it's about Jesus. You get to know Jesus. You get connected to the head. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. The two, two things that the head does for the body. We have to get connected to the head. If I, can, if I can just move you closer to the head, who is Jesus, if I can connect you with the head, he will do so much more for you than any like, special lesson I can give you about finances, about marriage, about whatever. If you can get connected to Jesus, and it, may, it probably won't take me three hours. We don't have to drive three hours one way to Mount Pleasant today. But, uh, but, but I am going to take a little bit of time and try to drive home what Paul is talking about. He says, and I want to go back to verse 18 and just walk through this a little bit more slowly because there's a lot to unpack here. Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and he is the firstborn from among the dead. This is something that I'm afraid that we don't really understand very often because we don't think about it. The fact that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. What does that mean? Well, that means that he is the first who was raised in, a, in resurrection power. He is the, 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 the first human that was resurrected and is still living today. So Lazarus was resurrected by Jesus, but he died again. Uh, there were people in the Old Testament that came back to life after being dead, but then they would get sick and die again. But Jesus is the first. He's the firstborn and the most important so that's, that's two things, an order of his significance, but also his just birthright. He is the first human, and I say, I say that loosely, he was the first God human that was raised from the dead with resurrection power, the kind of resurrection power that you and I will experience someday. And I think one of the reasons why we don't think about the fact that Jesus was the first raised again by, with resurrection power is because honestly, we don't think about our own resurrection very often. We don't really dwell on that very much. In fact, even on the, in the gospel story, we don't hang out very long at the resurrection. It's almost like the resurrection was just important enough because it was an afterthought. It's like, well, you know, Jesus died for our sin. That's the big thing, the cross. Every church has a cross. Not very many churches have little empty tombs <laughs> because we, most of our songs are about the cross. Most of our poetry is about the cross. Most of our preaching is about the cross. And the cross is wonderful. There's nothing, uh, I'm not throwing shade on the cross. The cross is, is good and well, but without the resurrection, the cross is not a victory. The cross, the, 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 the cross is effective for the shed blood of Jesus to bring peace between us and God. But without the resurrection, there is no continued freedom. There is no continued purity. There is no continued. It is the resurrection of Jesus's physical body, Paul says, by which we are reconciled to God. And this is important because the Gnostics, a huge part of the Gnostics, basically they believed that all flesh was evil. So they said that Jesus probably wasn't real flesh. He was some kind of angel or some kind of spirit that looked human, but wasn't really human because it's impossible for a holy, righteous person to be in flesh. And Paul says, no, his body is so important. Jesus had to come in a physical body. And that's important. Of course, we don't talk about that very often. And so because we don't talk about that very often, I'm going to talk about that today. The necessity for the, that, that the head 
would be made of the same material as the body. The head must be made of the same material as the body. And that's why when God became man, it wasn't for 33 some odd years. And then poof, he went back to being non-man. The truth is right now in heaven, there is a theanthropos, there is a God-man on the throne for the first time in all, all time and even eternity. There is a, a, a God-man, a, a, a man who is man and God. And this has never been. When God, no wonder the angels leaned over Bethlehem in awe and wonder when God became man because it was a permanent move. He took on the role of a servant. He clothed himself in humility. And he's now clothed in glory and honor. But the glory and honor he has is similar to the glory that will be held out for us in the gospel. You want to know what the hope of the gospel is? It is the resurrection of the human body. And I've preached a number of, of funerals, Christian funerals too. And Christian funerals, there is a lot of hope. That's what Paul said. He said, we grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Well, what's the hope? Unfortunately, many, many times what we think the hope is, the hope is that we get to die too someday. And we're going to die too, and then we're going to go meet them wherever they are. That's not the hope of the gospel. Death, I, I, was, I was talking to a, a pastor just a while back, and we were, we were com just talking over dinner, and he was talking about how Jesus um, took death, which was the, the, the ultimate evil, and he turned it into the ultimate upgrade, the ultimate good, that when we die, we go to heaven, and Jesus did that, and, it's, and, and he just, it was amazing. And I said, yeah, that would probably preach really well if I like shouted that out, and people would be like, yeah, but it's not really true. If death were the ultimate good, why are we so mournful at funerals? Two days ago was Nick's birthday. Many of you know Nick. I mean, we're happy that Nick is in a better place. That's what Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he said, it's actually far better that I be with the Lord than to be with you all. Uh, he, you know, he, he made that clear. He made that clear. But he also was very clear that that's not the hope of the Christian. Which is why we mourn, because something's still not quite right. Because Nick's body has been cremated and it's a pile of ashes, basically. But if I were preaching Nick's funeral and at the end of the funeral, his pile of ashes started, his little box started shaking and pieces started coming together. The pieces that were, fell off at the morgue and just are all over the place, wherever it might be scattered. Where, you know, because many people scatter ashes. But, and so, so wherever ashes may be scattered from, and they all start coming together and, and forming this, this new body that looks kind of like Nick, but doesn't really look like Nick. But he's impervious to disease. It's impossible for him to get, even catch a cold. He's got perfect memory. He's got a perfect body. He's at the perfect age, whatever that is. Some say it's 33. Uh, he's He's, 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 he's at the, uh, and, and he, he stands up before us and then he grabs the mic and he says, death is swallowed up in victory. That means a little something more than we're going to see him someday whenever we all die and get to go to this beautiful place of rest. And that's the hope held out in the gospel. 
And, and this is what the early church was obsessed about. And in fact, they, you, you read the writings of the early disciples. They were shocked that Jesus rose from the dead. Some of them didn't even believe in physical resurrection, probably, because there was a huge argument in those days as to whether or not people would ever be resurrected from the dead. And, and yet here is Jesus. And it says in one of the gospels that they were all with him in a room and none of them that dared ask who he was. Wait a minute, why would you have to ask when you know him? They knew he was Jesus, but they didn't, he didn't look like Jesus. In fact, when I think it was Mary Magdalene went to the, went, went, went to the grave to, to pour oil on and spices on his body, she, he's not there and she's weeping and this guy comes up to her. She thought he was a gardener and he says, why are you weeping, Mary? What's wrong? She doesn't recognize his voice. She doesn't recognize his face. It's interesting. The first Adam was a gardener as well. But anyway, that's just a little side note. And she thought he was just some guy working the grounds. And she goes, well, they, they stolen his body and I can't believe it. And when he said her name, something clicked. And she, it says she knew it was the Lord. There's this knowing. There's this, it's not, you don't look like him, but you are him. And I know it. And so what I want to do is I want to show you a couple of scriptures. John 20 uh, verse 19 is one where Jesus is raised from the dead and he's walking in this new body. And it's a body that we know cannot get sick. We know that it's immortal. We know that it lives forever. We know that, but we also know that it's a little bit weird because in John 20, 19, it says that on the evening of the first day of the week, that Sunday when the disciples were together, with the doors locked, and that's important, the writer is telling you, this is, this is John, he's like, man, I was there, and I'm telling you, I checked the doors. Uh, they were locked because we were so afraid of the Jewish leaders because the body of Jesus had been stolen, and they're going to think we did it. And so, man, we had the windows shut. We had the doors locked. We, every, we, were, we, were, we, were, we were locked up. We were in a cube, a three-dimensional cube. Walls, ceiling, floor, doors, locked. And then it says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, hold up. <laughs> and this is what John's explaining. He said, I don't know how to explain this to you except just to tell you what happened. But we were in this room and the doors were locked and Jesus showed up. Now, the Gnostics would say, oh, that's because he's a ghost. Because ghosts can do that. They can go through walls, as we all know. Uh, you know. But he's, but he's like, no, no, no. Because then he goes on to explain the fact that he said, how about we eat something? And ghosts don't, ghosts don't eat. And he eats, he digests, and it just kind of stays in there. And they touch him, and he says, look, touch my, touch my scars and see that I am flesh and bone. See that I, like, I am a real body that has been risen from the dead. And John's like, I don't know how to explain this, except we were in this room, and suddenly he was in the room. And this happened several times, too. Uh, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is walking along. His, these guys don't recognize him, even though they're talking about him. They don't know it's him, and he, go, he stops off with them, and he sits down to eat with them, and he breaks the bread, and when he breaks the bread and hands it to them, they recognize something that clicks. They go, that's Jesus, and then he disappears. He's gone. Humans don't disappear. I mean, regular humans don't. Resurrected humans, on the other hand. So I'm going to present to you some, some mind-stretching today, okay? We're going to stretch your mind a little bit. 
Um, we're going to stretch it all the way back to 1262. I think the year was 1262. There was a monk who was studying Genesis chapter 1. And from Genesis chapter 1, he saw that God said 10 times, uh, that, that the, the scripture says that God said 10 times. God said, let there be, let there be, let there be, 10 different times. And so based on that, he said he believed that there were actually 10 dimensions of reality. Because he saw within each time that God said something, a different, a different something happened that was different than the thing before it. And it, not only different in terms of different this way, but different this way. It was, it was deeper. It was... So anyway, he surmised there were ten dimensions. He said four of them are visible and six of them are hidden was the term he used. Well, modern physicists today say that we live in a ten-dimensional reality. Four of them are what they call um, open or flat, and um, six of them are curled in on themselves. We can't see them. Six of the dimensions. So just to blow your, stretch your mind a little bit, a three-dimensional cube um, to a being that lives in three dimensions, like you and I do, is impossible to get out of. You're stuck. But if you even just live in four dimensions... Go, go online and Google a four-dimensional cube. It's called a Tesseract for those Avenger fans because it looks kind of like the Tesseract because it is three dimensions plus the fourth dimension added to it. If you have a three-dimensional cube, a three-dimensional being can't get out of a three-dimensional cube, but if you just simply move up one dimension, you literally fall out of a four-dimensional cube. That's not even to talk about a five or six or seven or perhaps all ten dimensions of our current reality. So let me explain it like this. It's a little hard to, exp to understand dimensions, and um, this is the way I've seen it explained, and this is how I would suggest to you. It's easier to go, it's easier to go back than forward, meaning um, we are three-dimensional beings. Like, we have height, depth, and width with three dimensions. So you look at this. This is a three-dimensional uh, Sharpie uh, marker here. Um, but this board is a two-dimensional drawing. There's only two dimensions here. There's no depth to it. There's height and width. You can go up, down, left, and right. You cannot come forward. So if I draw a square here and I, and I draw Mr., Mr. Circle in the middle of the square, Mr. Circle is trapped to Mr. Circle, he, he, he can't look up, and he can't look down. He can just look sideways. To him, there's a line, there's a line, there's a line, there's a line. He is, all the doors are locked in his room. He cannot get out of that room. And he cannot see his friend over here, Mr. Circle. Just trying to be creative with the names. He can't see his friend over here or his, his, his other friend over here. Mr. Triangle, changing it up. These guys can see each other. This guy cannot see him, and he cannot see him. Nor can he get to him. Because they're living in two-dimensional reality, two dimensions. And that is the version of their reality. That's it. There is no other reality. But imagine for a minute if we were to be able to pick him up off of the surface and bring him into a three-dimensional realm. If we took Mr. Circle that's stuck in his little square, who believes himself to be completely alone, he can't see the fact that I'm right here. He can't see how close I am to him. Because in his dimension, he can't see this way. 
And, and, and yet, if I were to act on him and pull him up and lift him out into this three-dimensional realm, he would suddenly see the square, he would see his friend, he would see his other friend, and he would see all of you all in this entire new world, and he would have to try to then, then I throw him back down, and he has to try to describe it to these guys. This is what happened to the Old Testament prophets, I believe. That God, who lives in far more dimensions than we know of, is able actually to touch him and him at the same time. Is able actually to be in Austin and Denver at the same time. Come on, somebody. Is able, he's, he's, he, because he lives in a different dimension. And so we try to explain him like we say he's one God in three persons. I think we're trying to describe something that lives in more dimensions than we know how to describe. And many times when, when God would lift up the prophets and show them things in heaven, read Revelation. He's always saying stuff like, well, it was something like this and it looked like a rainbow and it was like, and it was like gold and it was like glass. And it was like, in other words, it was kind of, but not really. And sort of, because, because if I were to come into this dimension, if I were to be able to put my hand into this dimension, they wouldn't see a three-dimensional being. They would basically see a smaller line at the tip of my finger and a bigger line as my fingers got in there and a larger line as my arm went in there. And so they would say, yeah, there was a wheel and then there was a wheel within a wheel. <laughs> and uh, there was this other, it's, it's, what, what, what is it? it they're, they're seeing according to their dimension. But you take this, this square, for instance, and you take this out into a three-dimensional world, you fall out of it. It's so easy to go in and out of that square in a three-dimensional world because it's just, it's a hollow square. It's not a cube. You have to cube it to make it solid. And so I believe that the resurrected body of Jesus operated in at least 10 dimensions, which is why he could seem to disappear when really he's not disappearing, he's just He's just using one of those other dimensions. One of them is time. We know the fourth dimension is time. So if you can freeze time and walk away, it looks like you disappeared. Because you have control of that dimension. For those of you wanting to know more, just watch the Avengers movies. <laughs> you, you have control of that dimension. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's kind of mind-stretching. But, but as a resurrected body, he's doing things that we cannot do. And we try to use them in words that we, that we know, but, but yet what, what happens is he comes into this square when it's completely closed off. He comes into our cube and it's completely closed off and he speaks to us and he eats with us. He's one of us, kind of. And then he ascends to heaven. He floats upon this cloud and disappears. We don't see him anymore. Well, why? Because I believe the, 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 the dimensional aspect of a resurrected body is far different than the dimensional aspect of, of, of this body that we're, that we're currently living in. And this is part of what is awaiting us. This is the hope held out in the gospel. That God would reach into the dirt again, a second time, after your body has decayed. See, it says, it says that he is the beginning. He's the first one. He's the one that goes before us. And, and that's true in terms of, you know, our, our regular everyday life. He steps into our tomorrow. He steps into our job. You've never stepped into a day that Jesus hasn't already been there. You've never walked into a room that Jesus hasn't already been in with you in the future. 
he's literally, he's gone before us. Uh, the writer of Hebrews calls him the forerunner. And the forerunner, that's a, that's a word for a little boat that would be attached to big boats. And when you get closer to the shore where it's rocky and it's a bit shallow, they would, they would drop the forerunner boat and somebody would, would row on out ahead of the bigger boat and make sure that there was a safe passageway through the fog, through the nonsense, through the rocks, and, and find a safe way to, to lodge, to get on shore. And then he would come back and say, okay, now we're going to attach to this little boat and I'm going to show you the way. You push me and I'll show you the way that you're going to go. That's what Jesus has done for us. He's gone into our tomorrows. He's gone into our next weeks. He's gone into our next year. That's why he's never caught off guard by anything. Dads, have you ever like played a video game that you've already beaten and you just want to play it again so you can look and feel like a rock star? Because like you know when that bad guy's coming around the corner, boom, headshot. You know when he's coming, boom, headshot, boom, headshot, 95%. You know, I mean like because you've already played it. This is why Jesus knows what to do in any given situation because he's already played the game and he's already beaten it. He's already figured out the ins and the outs of it. And he comes back to us and he says, will you trust me? Will you take my hand and trust that I've already been into your tomorrow? This is why worry is, this is why our worry and our depression and our anxiety about things that are to come is so insulting to God. As if he hasn't already been there. As if he hasn't already walked through it. As if he didn't know that you were going to face this. And he's already faced it in, in, a, in another dimension. You haven't even experienced the victory. He's already won the victory that you have yet to experience. And so he comes back and he says, let me guide you. Let me and, and what I love about Paul is he says, yeah, he's the beginner. He's the leader. He goes out ahead. But man, if you knew how far out ahead he had really gone. If you hit fast forward in your life next week, next year, next 10 years, next 30 years, fast forward to your funeral. Yeah, he's been there too. Fast forward to they put your box in the grave and all your skin is eaten by worms and all that's left is your skeletal remains. Yeah, he's been there too. And then when your bones turn to dust and there's just some hair and some teeth, he's been there too. And then when the trumpet sounds and Gabriel puts one foot on, a mount, on one mountain and a foot on another mountain and he calls his children home, he's also been there. He's seen the recollection of dirt and dust. He's seen the recollection of, 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 of microorganisms and, and everything necessary. And he's seen the new life that's been breathed into that body. And he's seen not just the body you are now, but the body that you will be. Not just the house you live in now, but the house you will live in in the new heaven and the new earth. And that's, and that's the thing. We're not going anywhere. <laughs> in the past 150 years, there's a theology that's very much escapism theology that's crept into the church that says, you know what, we really don't have to treat this earth well because we're going to leave it behind. We don't have to treat this body well because we're going to leave it behind. And we, we're going to escape. In fact, if he's going to come down in the clouds, we're going to meet him in the air. And then what? Well, Scripture doesn't say. It says we'll forever be with the Lord. But we've added we're going to escape to some other dimension, some other uh, heaven up there that's a million miles from here. It's not. He says he's going to make all things new. He said the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. He said, behold, I make all things new and the, the new Jerusalem will come out of heaven and come to earth. Like this earth, this place right here, South Austin is going to remain long after 
The dead in Christ are raised. This is why Paul says you, you, you ought to work really hard at what you're doing now, knowing that your labor is not in vain because what you're building now is going to last. It's the whole thing's not just going to burn up in fire and then we're going to throw it all away and then we're just going to have this other, we're going to go to this other planet. No, we are here. God is not a God who just throws things away and starts over. You know, like when he, when, when he met the man by the pool of Bethesda, he didn't say, hey, um, so um, those legs aren't working, right? Here's a sword. Let's just, let's just get rid of those. Cut them off. Can someone take these out of here? They're trash. They're not working. Uh, we need some new prosthetics here. Let's get, a, get the guy some. No, he speaks to the old leg. And he says, that thing that had died 35 years ago, that thing that had shriveled up, that thing that wasn't working, I'm going to restore it to its original purpose. And that's what the head does. The head sees what is out, out ahead, but it also brings restoration to what is dying in the body. It speaks to it, and it brings all the necessary tools not to throw it away and build something new, but to take what was old, what was broken, what was wounded, what was, um, let's see, Scripture says, corruptible what was mortal and put on incorruption and put on immortality and to make all things new. And this is why I think our version of God is so less than who he is. Because our version of the resurrection is so lame, so less than what it is. Our version is basically we get to die and get out of here. But then that, that, that has us worshiping a God that enjoys funerals. <laughs> who, who is this guy? Hey, happy Father's Day. Your father in heaven just loves it when you die. Why? Why does he love it when we die? It says precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saints. He's weeping with us. Death is a, a, a symbol of, of sin. It's a reminder of brokenness and the disorganized chaos that we live in. Why is he celebrating this? People are like, oh, he just needed another flower for his garden. He's not, you're not a flower. He's not a gardener. And even if all of those things were true, he's not so evil to just pluck people and leave people broken and hurting because he's working on his gardening skills. That's not how that works. No, death is a reminder that all things have not been put right yet. Death is a reminder that this is a hope we're holding on to, that Nick will rise again and we will see him in his completed state and in his full state and in his incorruptible state and in his unsick state. Like I remember a year ago on Nick's birthday, we were just celebrating that he made it to his birthday. And, and I still celebrate that because, because when God brings physical healings on this earth, it's not that he never wants us to die. It's that he's letting us know that he's power. If he's powerful enough to heal you now, he's powerful enough to raise you later. It's to let you know that even after you die, that there is still a hope held out in the gospel for me and for my body and for my family. And I will rise again. And I will come back. 78648 zip code and I will continue what I started and I will continue with power and I will continue with wisdom and I will continue with more might and we'll, we'll, we'll have the best church ever at that point and we'll have the greatest worship services ever and we'll have the best horses ever and we'll have a viper that doesn't leak any oil and it'll be amazing 
because we will we will we will coming back here so what you do here matters where you spend your money here matters who you clothe here matters who you love here matters who you help here matters because you're probably going to hopefully run into them again someday this is why you can't hold grudges against people what are you going to do if they move up next to you forever gonna have to work through that one real quick I have to figure that one out because any kind of jealousy, any kind of bitterness grieve, will grieve the heart of God and your immortality might not be quite as immortal as you think that it is because you can always become un what you were created to be, it seems to me. As we deteriorate who we we're created to be, we become ugly inside and we become evil inside and we become a, a, a rejection, an enemy of God. But the beauty of the gospel and this is where I don't have time to get all into it, but I do want to keep reading just a little bit. Where it says, he says, he says that you have been reconciled by the physical body. You've been reconciled. And so, guys, I did make a slide. We're not going to go to all the other scriptures that I had in there, but I did make a slide for this word reconciled. It's a, it's, it's a combination of three words, which kind of bothered me. Sometimes I come across words I just don't really understand what they mean. And for the most part, to reconcile means to make peace with. And that is true, and that makes sense. But this is the way the Greek brings about this idea of making peace. These three words smashed together, apo, kata, and alasso. So it's, ap, it's apokata, alasso is the word. But when you break it down, it's apo, which means of separation, something that is apart from something else. It's separate. But then kata means to bring together. And then... Alasso is to change or transform something or to trade something for something else. And this is what God has done to us. There's a, there's a uh, atonement theory out there called uh, penal satisfaction atonement. I don't really like that term because it's kind of a weird term. Uh, it really means penalty satisfaction atonement. Basically saying that when Jesus died on the cross, he was satisfying the penalty for our sins. And I think there is some elements, of course, of Christ paying, uh, paying a price for our ransom. Uh, there's some uh, certainly Old Testament uh, similarities to that. But I think the problem with a penalty satisfactionary atonement theory is the way that it starts. It starts with an angry God who is so mad at us that actually when you listen to atonement, uh, penalty satisfaction atonement people, they talk about when Jesus was in the garden, he said, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass from me. And so they, Jesus doesn't say what the cup is, but they, they'll, they'll tell you. They say the cup is the wrath of God, which is interesting because this is the way they view God. He's so just mad that he's got a whole cup of wrath ready to pour, <laughs> ready to pour out in the whole world. I, I, I find that to be less than who I know God to be. It is true in Romans 1 and 2 that those who are wicked are storing up for themselves wrath. It is true that God is a God of justice and a God of wrath, and he does be, get angry at sin. But to say that he, he can't set that aside is just not true. To say he has to pour that out on somebody, and so, darn it, Jesus, you got to line up. That's essentially, I mean, that's, that's, that's a pagan idea, actually. 
that the angry God must be appeased by a human sacrifice. And once he's appeased, then okay, fine. All right, you're all fine. Because he's genuinely angry. I don't see that God. I don't see that God in scripture, a God who's genuinely always angry. I see a God who is longing for a reconnection with his children and Jesus coming to drink the cup of suffering. (laughs) Not the cup of the wrath of God. How can God be mad at God? That's another question I have. If he is God, why is he, is he just mad at himself? Is that how that works? No, like he's drinking the cup of suffering, something that deity has never had to do. And, and, and it's because of this right here, this separation. We are separated from God. We have a God who is separated from us, not because he's angry, but because of our sin has separated him from us, cannot get close to us. And so there is a separation there. But what I love about this word reconciliation, notice it says that God reconciled us. Jesus reconciled us. Jesus didn't reconcile God. So in a penalty satisfaction atonement theory, you have an angry God who is suddenly no longer angry. So there's a change that happens in God. We kind of stay the same because we put our faith in Jesus and we just keep kind of going along, but, but God changes. It's almost like Jesus died for God, which, is, which I've actually heard people, there's that it was a great song, but it was slightly off. Christ died for God and God was satisfied with Christ. Yeah, yeah, he was satisfied with Christ. But Jesus didn't have to die to make God not mad at us. Jesus died for this right here. So that, so, so there's a separation. And for thousands of years, there was a separation until Jesus in Bethlehem brought together human and mankind within the same body. Notice, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. The fullness of the Godhead, yes, but also the fullness of the process of salvation would dwell inside of Jesus. We look at Jesus and we say, wow, that's what God wanted all along. He wanted connection. He wanted the Holy Spirit and the human spirit in the same body. Obviously not in the exact same way because we are not God, but to have that marriage of flesh and spirit. To have that beautiful connection, that marriage, that's what God wanted. And so we were separated, but Jesus brought in his body, he brought the two together. And he lived a sinless life. He lived as God in human flesh with all the temptations that we face. And then he died. And he took our sins on his body. That's what scripture says. Most people say that he who knew no sin became sin. That's a bad translation because he he himself did not become anything except who he always was. But he carried, Isaiah says, our sins and he carried it on his physical body and it was crucified to the cross. And if if that's all that would have happened, we would stop right there. Uh, Basically, the word reconcile would be apokata. But because he rose from the dead, there's something else offered out in the gospel. And is this word alasso? It is an actual change. Not that God changed, but that we changed. We were reconciled to God because in Christ's physical body, he literally changes us. And because he rose from the dead and we saw this transformational change, he started living in different dimensions, walking in different, he started thinking differently, walking differently, living differently. We see for us a prototype, yes, of what we will be someday, 
That's what Paul said. We will be like him for we will see him as he is. But also what we can be right now, what we can start to step into right now in our spirit man. Spiritually, we can have a resurrection happen inside of our chest and a new creation can be born. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Not in some weird uh, galaxy far, far away, but in my chest right now, there is something being born that operates on different dimensions with different rules, with different priorities, with different power. For the very same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in your mortal bodies. To quicken it, to bring it power, to bring it realization, to bring a wisdom, to start seeing things and living. And yeah, you're still stuck in a three-dimensional world out here, but we have multiple dimensions on the inside. This is why the gifts of the Spirit and wisdom and prophecy and knowledge can operate in the church because we're not limited to the three dimensions that we are walking in. We are living in something much higher than that. In our spirit, man, the hope of the gospel is sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit here and now. That as he is here and now, as there is a marriage here and now between us and him, as there is a change that takes place inside of us, we are reconciled to God so that there is no more war, so that there is peace between us and our Father as there always was from the very beginning. As there was intended to be from the very beginning. He, Jesus, in his body makes this possible because he, he brought all things together. He crucified that thing which separated us and he resurrected that thing which would dwell and live inside of us as a new person, a new... See, God's not looking for a replacement, Harry. He's not looking for a replacement, Poppy. He's not looking for a replacement, Mia. He likes the old one. And so he calls the old one out of the grave. He calls the old one out of the dust. Now, here and now, he calls the old one out of the dust. He resurrects the old one. The same woman, the same man, with the same inclination, with the same temptations, with the same face, with the same ancestry, with the same family, with the same cousins, with the same uncles, with the same... He calls them and he says, here's a new dimension for you to live in. Here's a new place for you to live in because I like you the way I made you. I'm not just going to throw you away. I am recreating what I started with. What was marred by sin? What was marred by addiction? It's just, I just call it out. Speak it and I, I change it. And that's what brings the connection with God. Which is why if you've never been changed by God, you, you don't have peace with God. Because Jesus didn't do anything to God. God's loving us all along. Jesus did something to us to change us. He took the cup of suffering, the worst kind of suffering, physical and mental and emotional and spiritual even. For he who knew no sin to carry the weight of that in order that we might have fellowship with him, in order that the war between us and him might be over, in order that real change might happen. And what's amazing is, I think it's in Ephesians, it says that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. So that's my job. That's my job, to tell people about their distance from God, to tell them about the one who brought God and man together, and to tell them about the change that's possible by faith in that one. And that's your job, and that's our job. That's why we're here. That's why we're still here. 
There was a story about a guy in World War II. December 26, 1944, the Japanese army sent this man. He's a second lieutenant. His name was Hiru Onada to the Philippine island of Lubang. Not sure I pronounced that right. His orders were to fight on indefinitely. Well, um, word never reached him several months later when World War II ended. Nobody told Hiru Onada that the war was over and he was told to fight on indefinitely. And so get this, for 30 more years, he went on fighting. Like in the context of a war that existed only in his mind. Because we were enemies with God in our minds because of our rebellious behavior. He went on fighting. He lived in hiding. He'd come out at night to steal food from the villages, even shot at people occasionally. 10 years into his, his hiding, he found a newspaper article about himself, but he thought it was a trick to try to get him to surrender. The Philippine government even dropped leaflets into the jungle asking him to come out. They came out with loudspeakers and they were shouting, Onada, the war is over. One day his own brother even stood at a microphone and begged him to come out, but give up. But he wouldn't do it because he had been commanded to fight and his honor was staked on his ability to follow orders. It wasn't until 1974 the Japanese government sent his old commanding officer, Major Taniguchi, who ordered Onada to surrender. <laughs> he finally gave up. Onada, man, was trapped for 30 years because he thought the war was still going on. And it wasn't until somebody that he trusted, somebody that he knew had his best interest out, somebody that he knew had a chain of command that had a, a, a knowledge of what was going on, came and told him, man, the war is over. You can surrender now. You can stop fighting now. I wonder how, much, how, how often the Holy Spirit is dropping leaflets over. How much the word of God is blaring on microphones throughout the city. But it's, it doesn't happen until somebody with relationship steps up and says, yeah, those leaflets are true. Yeah, that newspaper, that Bible is true. That Gideon thing in the hotel, that's true. The war is over. You are forgiven. You are able to stop. You don't have to fight. You can surrender. God will do something inside of you you can't do in yourself. So, Father, we...